six years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by J. Randolph Chapter 4 My First Brush with Indians The latter part of August 1875, Private L. P. Syker was sent on detached service to Fort Mason, about fifty miles due east of our camp. While there, a runner came in from Honey Creek with the report that a band of fifteen Indians had raided the John Gamble Ranch and stolen some horses within twenty-five steps of the ranch house. The Redskins appeared on their raid late in the evening, and the runner reached Mason just at dark. Lamb Syker had just eaten his supper and was sitting in the lobby of the Frontier Hotel when the message came. He hurried to the livery stable, saddled his horse, Old Pete, and started on an all-night ride for the company. The nights in August are short, but Syker rode into our camp about eight o'clock the following morning and reported the presence of the Indians. The company horses were out under herd for the day, but Captain Roberts sent out hurry orders for them. Sergeant Plunk Murray was ordered to detail fifteen men, issue them ten days' rations, and one hundred rounds of ammunition each. Second Sergeant Jim Hawkins, Privates Paul Durham, Nick Donnelly, Tom Gillespie, Mike Lynch, Andy Wilson, Henry Baltimore, Jim Trout, William Kimbrough, Silas B. Crump, Ed Syker, Jim Day, John Cups, and myself, under command of Captain Roberts, were selected as the personnel of the scout. As can be imagined, I was delighted with my good fortune in getting on the party, and looked forward with intense satisfaction to my first brush with Indians. The mules were soon packed, and by the time the horses reached camp, the scout was ready. Sergeant Hawkins, as soon as the men had saddled their horses, walked over to the captain, saluted, and told him the scout was ready. Before leaving camp, Captain Roberts called to Sergeant Murray and told him that he believed the Indians had about as many horses as they could well get away with, and that they would probably cross the San Saba River near the mouth of Scalp Creek and follow the high divide between the two streams on their westward march back into the plains. If the Redskins did not travel that way, the captain thought they would go out up the big saline, follow the divide between the North Llano and San Saba rivers westward, and escape. But he was confident the band would travel up the divide north of Menardville. He determined to scout that way himself, and instructed Murray to send two rangers south over to the headwaters of Bear Creek to keep a sharp lookout for the trail. These two scouts were to repeat their operations the next day, and if they discovered the Indian trail, Murray was to take up a second scout and follow the Redskins vigorously. His plan outlined, Captain Roberts gave the order to mount, and we rode toward Menardville, making inquiry about the Indians. 
All was quiet at this little frontier village. So we crossed the San Saba River just below the town, and after passing the ruins of the Spanish fort, Captain Roberts halted his men and prepared to send out trailers. Two of the best trailers in the command were ordered to proceed about four hundred yards ahead of the party and keep a close watch for pony tracks while they traveled due north at a good saddle-horse gait. The main body of men, under the captain himself, would follow directly behind the outposts. Our party had traveled about eight or nine miles, when Captain Robert's keen eyes discovered a lone pony standing with his head down straight ahead of us. He sighted the animal before the trailers did, and remarked to us that there the trail was. The outposts halted when they saw the pony and waited for us to come up. Sure enough, here was the Indian trail, probably twenty yards wide. Captain Roberts dismounted and walked over the sign, scrutinizing every pony track, bunch of grass, and fallen leaf. He then examined the old pony. The animal was cut with a lance, with his back sore and his feet all worn out. It was then between twelve and one o'clock, and the captain thought the Indians had passed that way about sunrise, for the blood and sweat on the horse was now dry. The trail showed the raiders were driving rather fast and were probably thirty-five or forty miles ahead of us. The captain decided it would be a long chase and that we would just have to walk them down if we caught them at all. There was no water on this divide, so we took the trail without stopping for dinner. Captain Roberts had a fine saddle horse, Old Rock, and we followed the trail at a steady gait of five or six miles an hour. At sundown we reached the old government road that runs from Fort McCavan to Fort Concho. We were then about twelve or fifteen miles south of Kickapoo Springs, so we turned up the road, reaching the springs late at night. The horses had not had a drop of water since leaving the San Saba that morning, and, facing a hot August sun all day, the men were pretty well tired out when they reached camp, had supper, and gotten to bed. We estimated we had ridden about sixty miles since leaving camp. During the day, Captain Robert's horse cast a shoe, so Tom Gillespie shod him by firelight, as it was the captain's intention to resume the trail at daylight. The following morning, Captain Roberts took a southwest course from Kickapoo Springs and paralleled the Indian trail we had left the evening before. It was late in the day before we picked the trail up again, and many of the boys were afraid we had lost it altogether. But the captain laughed at their fears and never doubted that we should find it again. The Indians, as their trail showed, were now traveling over a tolerably rough country, which made our progress slow. About noon we found some rainwater, and as it was fearfully hot, we camped for dinner and to give the horses a short rest. When the boys went out to catch their mounts, we found we had camped right in a bed of rattlesnakes. Two of our horses had been bitten. Jim Day's Checo had a head on him as big as a barrel, while the captain's horse, Old Rock, had been bitten on his front leg just above the ankle, and it had swollen up to his body. Neither of the animals were able to walk. Jim Day could not be left alone in that Indian country, so Captain Roberts detailed private cups to stay with Day until the horses died or were able to travel. 
In either case, they were then to return to camp. The animals soon recovered, and Day and Cups beat us back to camp. The pack loads were now doubled on one mule, so Captain Roberts could ride the other. Reduced to thirteen men, we followed the Indians until night. It was a hard day on both men and beasts, so we camped where we found a little water in a draw that drained into the South Concho River. Considering the way we had come, the captain thought we had covered sixty miles during the day's ride. We had two rather old men on the scout, Mike Lynch and Andy Wilson, and they were nearly all in. I awoke Andy at two a.m. to go on guard. The poor fellow was so stiff he could hardly stand, and I tried to get him to go back to bed, telling him I would stand his guard, but he was game, and in a few minutes hobbled out to the horses and relieved me. Early in the morning we were up and traveling. The mule Captain Roberts was riding did not step out as fast as Old Rock had done, and the boys had an easier time keeping up. We camped at noon on just enough rainwater to do us and took up the trail again after dinner. The trailers stopped suddenly, and as we rode up Captain Roberts asked what was the matter. They said it seemed as though the Indians at this point had rounded up the horses and held them for some cause or other. The captain dismounted and swept the country with his field glasses. He circled around where the horses had been standing and found where a lone Indian had walked straight away from the animals. He followed the tracks to an old live oak tree that had been blown down. Then the reason for the stop became apparent. The Indians had sighted a herd of mustangs grazing just beyond this tree, and the redskin had slipped up on them and killed a big brown mare. Captain Roberts picked up the cartridge shell the old brave had used and found it to be from a fifty caliber buffalo gun. We also found the mustang from which the Indians had cut both sides of ribs and one hind quarter. Captain Roberts was much elated. Boys, he said with a smile, we now have ninety-five chances out of a hundred to catch those Indians. They will not carry this raw meat long before stopping to cook some. We have followed them now over one hundred and fifty miles, and they have never stopped to build a fire. They are tired and hungry and probably know where there is water not far away. He spoke with such confidence that I marveled at his knowledge of the Indian habits. We were now on the extreme western draw of the South Concho River, far above the point at which the water breaks out into a running stream. Finally the trail led out on that level and vast tract of country between the head of South Concho and the Pecos on the west. These Indians turned a little north from the general direction they had been traveling, and all of a sudden we came to some rock water holes. Here the Redskins had built three fires, cooked both sides of the Mustang ribs, and had picked them clean. From this high tableland they could look back over their trail for fifteen miles. The captain thought they had been there early in the morning, as the fires were out and the ashes cold. We did not lose any time at this camp, but hurried on, following the trail until late in the evening, when the trailers again halted. When we came up, we found that the trail that had been going west for nearly two hundred miles had suddenly turned straight north. Captain Roberts seemed to be puzzled for a time, and said he did not understand this move. About one mile north there was a small mot of mesquite timber, 
This he examined through his glasses, seeming to me to examine each tree separately. The trail led straight into these trees, and we followed it. In the mesquite timber we found the Indians had hacked some bushes partly down, bent them over, cut up the horse meat they had been carrying with them into tiny strips, strung it on the branches, and, building a fire beneath them, had barbecued their flesh. The redskins had made the prettiest scaffolo for meat cooking I ever saw. We found plenty of fire here, and the captain was sure we would have an Indian fight on the morrow. From the trees the trail swung west again. The redskins were traveling slowly now, as they evidently thought they were out of danger. Just before sundown the scout halted, and we were ordered not to let any smoke go up lest the band we were trailing should spot it and take alarm. As soon as we had cooked our supper, Captain Roberts had the fires carefully extinguished. It had been a good season on the tablelands, and there were many ponds filled with water, some of them one hundred yards wide. We camped right on the edge of one of these big holes, and where the Indians had waded into it the water was still muddy. The boys were cautioned not to strike a match that night as we were certain the Indians were not far ahead of us. We covered between forty and fifty miles that day. Camp was called at daybreak. We dared not build a fire, so we could have no breakfast. We saddled our horses and again took the trail. Old Jenny, the pack mule, was packed for the last time on earth, for she was killed in the fight that shortly followed. As soon as it was light enough to see a pony track, two of the boys traced it on foot and led their horses, the remainder of our party coming along slowly on horseback. By sunrise we were all riding and following the trail rapidly, eager to sight the marauding thieves. We had traveled some five or six miles when Paul Durham called Captain Roberts' attention to a dark object ahead that looked as if it were moving. The captain brought his field glasses to bear on the object specified and exclaimed it was the Indians. He ordered the boys to dismount at once, tighten their cinches, leave their coats and slickers, and make ready to fight. As we carried out this order, a distressing stillness came over the men. Captain Roberts and Sergeant Hawkins were the only ones of our party that had ever been in an Indian fight, and I suppose the hearts of all of us green, unseasoned warriors beat a little more rapidly than usual at the prospect of soon smelling powder. Captain Roberts called out to us in positive tones not to leave him until he told us to go, and not to draw a gun or pistol until ordered, declaring that he wanted no mistake on the eve of battle. He ordered the pack mule caught and led until we went into the fight when she was to be turned loose. The Indians were out on an open prairie dotted here and there with small skirts of mesquite timber. The captain thought our only chance was to ride double file straight at them in the hope they would not look back and discover us. We moved forward briskly, and as luck would have it, we got within four or five hundred yards of the redskins before they sighted us. At once there was a terrible commotion. The Indians rounded up their stock and caught fresh mounts almost in the twinkling of an eye. Then, led by their old chief, they took positions on a little elevated ground some two hundred yards beyond the loose horses. The redskins stationed themselves about fifteen or twenty feet apart, their battle line when formed being about one hundred yards wide. 
As each warrior took his station, he dismounted, stood behind his horse, and prepared to fire when given the signal. The captain, with a smile, turned to us and said, "'Boys, they are going to fight us. See how beautifully the old chief forms his line of battle.' From a little boy I had longed to be a ranger and fight the Indians. At last, at last, I was up against the real thing, and with not so much as an umbrella behind which to hide. I was nervous. I was awfully nervous. We were now within one hundred steps of the Redskins. Then came the order to dismount, shoot low, and kill as many horses as possible. The captain said as we came up, that every time we got an Indian on foot in that country, we were sure to kill him. With the first shot, everybody, Indian and ranger, began firing and yelling. In a minute we had killed two horses, and one Indian was seen to be badly wounded. In another minute the Redskins had mounted their horses and were fleeing in every direction. Captain Roberts now ordered us to mount and follow them. The roar of the guns greatly excited my pony, and he turned round and round. I lost a little time in mounting, but when I did get settled in the saddle, I saw an Indian running on foot. He carried a Winchester in his hand, and waved to another Indian who was riding. The latter turned and took the one on foot up behind him. As they started away for a race, I thought to myself that no grass pony on earth could carry two men and get away from me and old Coley. The Indians had a good animal, but I gradually closed on them. The redskin riding behind would point his gun back and fire at me, holding it in one hand. I retaliated by firing at him every time I could get a cartridge in my old Sharps carbine. I looked back and saw Ed Syker coming to my aid as fast as old Dixie would run. He waved encouragement to me. Finally the old brave ceased shooting, and as I drew a little closer he held out his gun at arm's length and let it drop, probably thinking I would stop to get it. I just gave it a passing glance as I galloped by. He then held out what looked to be a fine rawhide rope and dropped that, but I never took the bait. I just kept closing in on him. He now strung his bow and began using his arrows pretty freely. Finally he saw I was going to catch him, and turned quickly into a little grove of mesquite timber. I was considered a fairly good brush rider, and as we went in among the trees, I drew right up within twenty steps of the brave, jumped from my mount, and made a sort of random shot at the horse, Indian, and all. The big fifty-caliber bullet struck the Indian pony just where its head couples on its neck, passed through the head, and came out over the left eye. It killed the horse at once, and it fell forward twenty feet. The old warrior hit the ground running, but I jumped my horse and ran after him. As I passed the dead horse, I saw the front rider struggling to get from under it. To my surprise, I saw he was a white boy, between fifteen and sixteen years old, with long, bright red hair. By this time, Ed Syker had arrived and was dismounting. The fugitive warrior now peeped from behind a tree, and I got a fine shot at his face, but overshot him six inches, cutting off a limb just over his head. He broke to run again, and as he came into view... Ed placed a bullet between his shoulders. He was dead in a minute. As Ed and I walked up to the dead Indian, we found he had also been shot in one ankle, and his bow had been partly shot in two. In his quiver he had left only three arrows. Syker and I hurried back to the dead horse to help the white boy, 
but he had extricated himself and disappeared. We then returned to the dead warrior, and Syker scalped him. We took the Indian's bow shield and a fine pair of moccasins. I also found a fine lance near where the horse fell, and I presume it was carried by the white boy. We found the redskin had no Winchester cartridges, and this was why he dropped the gun. He could not carry it and use his bow. We went back over the trail, but were unable to find the gun the brave had dropped as a bait. By noon that day, the boys had all returned to where the fight had begun, and the Indian horses had been left. Jim Dawkins and Paul Durham captured a Mexican boy about fifteen years old. He looked just like an Indian, had long plaited hair down his back, was bareheaded, wore moccasins, and a breech clout. Had he been in front of me, I would surely have killed him for a redskin. Captain Roberts spoke Spanish fluently, and from this boy he learned that the Indians were lipans that lived in old Mexico. He was taken back to our camp, and finally his uncle came and took him home. He had been captured while herding oxen near old Fort Clark, Texas, and an elder brother, who was with him at the time, had been killed. The boys were then sent back by Captain Roberts to find the white lad that had been with the Indian Syker had killed. Though we searched carefully, we could find no trace of the mysterious youngster. Some years later, I learned that this boy's name was Fisher, and that his parents went into old Mexico and ransomed him. He was from Llano County, and after he returned, he wrote, or had written, a small pamphlet that contained an account of his life with the Indians. He told of being with old Chief Magouche in this fight. He declared he hid in the grass within sight of the rangers while they were hunting him, but was afraid to show himself for fear of being killed. When the rangers had all gathered after the fight, our pack mule, Jenny, was missing. We supposed in the run that she had followed the Indians off. Six months later, Ed Syker was detailed to pilot a body of United States soldiers over that same country to pick out a road to the Pecos River. He visited our old battlefield and found Jenny's carcass. She had a bullet hole in the center of her forehead. The Indians, in shooting back at their attackers, probably hit her with a chance shot. The pack saddle was still trapped to her body, but wolves had eaten all the supplies. Five hundred rounds of ammunition were still with her, showing that no one had seen her since the day of her death. Lacking Jenny's supplies, we did not have a blooming thing to eat but the barbecued horse meat we had captured from the Indians. This had no salt on it, and I just could not swallow it. In the fight, we killed three horses and one Indian and captured the Mexican lad. At least two redskins were badly wounded, and as victors we captured fifty-eight head of horses and mules, several Indian saddles and bridles, and many native trinkets. Not a man or a horse of our party was hurt, the pack mule being our only fatality. All voted Captain Roberts the best man in the world. We turned our faces homeward, hungry and tired, but highly elated over our success. The second day after the fight, we reached Wash DeLong's ranch on the headwaters of the South Concho River. Mr. DeLong, a fine frontiersman, killed a beef for us and furnished us with flour and coffee without cost. Three days later, we were back at our camp at Los Morris. The stolen stock was returned to their owners. 
and thus ended my first campaign against the Indians. End of chapter 4 